Here's your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. My name is Kerry Stamp, and this is a Business in Paradise podcast. I have a guest that I can't even tell you how excited I am to have today. Uh, I have States Hines, who is actually my chair for Vistage here in Palm Beach County. States has been a Vistage chair for a very long time, and before that, he had a phenomenally successful business career. He's going to tell you his story of how he got into Vistage and how he got to Palm Beach County. Uh, But before I do, I would just like to welcome States. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you for everything that you've done for me and my team. Carrie, thank you for having me today. It's it's indeed my pleasure. Hey, so States, um, I mentioned Vistage, and I mentioned that I'm in a Vistage group. And most of the people that are listening to this podcast may have heard of Vistage or some other similar organization. But for the benefit of those that haven't, tell us a little bit about what Vistage is and uh, how you came to Vistage. It's just like most people who found Vistage, it was an accident. A very dear friend of mine and I used to meet and kind of lament a little bit that there were things missing in our business careers and we wish there was a place we could go and find help or learn or continue to learn. And one day my friend found it and he introduced me to Vistage and dragged me to a meeting kicking and screaming and I went and I don't think I missed a meeting after that. And then when we sold our interest in our last business, I was looking around to do something. And I got a call from Bill Williams, who was president of Vistage in San Diego, and said, States, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. And he says, we want you to chair a group in the Palm Beaches. And I said, my gosh, I don't know that I'm qualified. And he said, we'll help you. That was 30 years ago, Carrie. I have been doing this for that long, and that's this is the longest career I've ever had, and I'm the most enjoyable career I've ever had is working with great people like yourself. Hey, States, thank you so much. And, and one of the things that really attracted me when I found out what Vistage was, was the fact that I had read early on in my life the Napoleon Hill book, Think and Grow Rich. And one of the things that he stresses is so important to be successful in life, and especially in business, is to have a mastermind group of people that can give you ideas, hold you accountable, and kind of serve as your outside board of directors. And so in our group here in Palm Beach County, we have about 15 different members from all different types of businesses. Some are men, some are women, some are young, some are older, uh, but their diverse experience and their diverse level of talent and information has been incredibly helpful to me. So States, you moved here 30 years ago to start this Vistage group. Tell us a little bit about before the time that you moved to Palm Beach, what were you doing? What was the California business like for you? Oh, I tell you, I, I lived a blessed life, Carrie. I moved to Los Angeles in 1955, not exactly sure what direction I was going to take. And fate 
took me into the new emerging semiconductor industry. Hardly anybody knew what it was, let alone how to use it. And so I, I got to start at the beginning and grow with it. And it just went on and on, which caused me to move not just from the semiconductor and solid state world, but to the aerospace world and rocketry and was and got to play a lot of fun opportunities. I said play because it, to me it wasn't really work. It was going, getting up every morning and, and going to to have a lot of fun watching things be created that had never existed before. And States, if you could go back, all right, we're, we're in the California, we're in the 1950s. And yes, you guys did hear that correctly. He said the 1950s. Yes. If you were talking to the young States and you were going to give him some advice on what to do for his career and how to focus on uh, building and growing different businesses, what are some of the things that based on what you know now that you would tell the young States? I would have told the young states what you led this conversation with. Read Napoleon Hill. Read any, all of the books that talk about learning to look into the future. I was there, I was doing it, but I didn't have the, the advantage of, of a Vistage group. If I'd have had a Vistage group back in those days, if somebody had pointed me in that direction, I think I, think I could have owned the world. Fantastic. I think that the type of advice of getting into a coaching program can be incredibly useful for anybody that wants to take their business to the next level. So, States, as you went about uh, building your businesses in California, tell us some of the things that you did that you thought were unique or innovative or strategies that uh, you used to build businesses that maybe other people weren't thinking about or doing at the time. The whole change from vacuum tube to solid state at that time was, was so amazing because we were now building things that could be taken into, put into airplanes, taken into space, miniaturized. We, we, the idea of carrying things around in our pocket uh, like a cell phone, uh, we were thinking about. We're trying to figure out how to do them. And, and so we were constantly trying to miniaturize things or take kind of clumsily components that existed and package them in ways that, that could be put into small packages while we figured out how to take the solid state uh, surfaces and, and structures and get them down to the miniaturized versions we have today. And these were semiconductors? Well, yes. Transistors used to look like the eraser on a, on a yellow pencil. And, uh, that, and, and today, that space you'd have a million comp uh, transistors in. All right. And for those of us that are not technical, what did these parts do? A transistor, simply stated, is a switch. It turns electricity on and off. Okay. So we're building these, and who are we selling them to? Everyone. I worked as, a, as an engineer, and then I was convinced to, to go into sales, and, and I, I worked for the first manufacturer of transistors, and I thought I was learning how to sell, but it turned out we couldn't make as many as were needed, so my job was really allocation. I visited with Burroughs and NCR and uh, Litton Industries, uh, Bendix, I mean, all of the major corporations uh, of that day, which still are the corporations of today. That's a good problem. 
problem to have when you're putting your clients <laughs> when you, when you're putting your clients on an allocation uh, because you don't have enough product to sell well, them. But I, ultimately, I had to learn how to sell. I found out that wasn't really sales. That it doesn't go on forever, especially when you get competition. So one of the things that's been crucial for me has been having a few good mentors, yourself among them. Thank you. Tell us, States, a little bit about some of the mentors or some of the people that you look back on now and say, geez, I learned a heck of a lot from this particular person. Oh, Henry Singleton. He has his degree in physics and outer space physics and was the founder of Teledyne. And he took the time when I was in my early 20s to sit down with me and say, States, what do you think about this? And you can do this. And here's the book. And, you know, I'll be back in a while and give it a try. And so the thing I learned was the same thing that I learned from my mother, you know, from the little train that could. He said, try. If you can think it, probably somebody's already doing it. And so look for that person. But if you can't find them, then we need to go ahead and create it. Wow. Uh, States, and you, you like to recommend material to people to improve their level of knowledge, to inspire them, and also to um, help them grow their business. Are there a few books or publications or things that you can think of that you would say that every business owner should know a little bit about this particular subject, and here's a place to go to get it? Most of the business owners you and I know, Kerry, are men and women who are building to tomorrow's business today because they can. They were standing up maybe when they should have been sitting down and the next thing they knew they were, they were doing something. And so, so it isn't reaching way out. Uh, to me, the books that, that really help, uh, uh, the first one that came to mind as soon as you started saying that is, is Jack Stack, which is kind of an older book, but it's still applicable. I found myself mentioning it to a guy yesterday. Uh, Jack Stack had a book called The Great Game of Business which really is just fabulous. All of the books by Dale Carnegie. He wrote several books. Uh, there's four or five that are always on the top seller list, and we think they're old hat, but they aren't, because they're, what, they're basic principles of what we need to do with people and with ourselves and how to properly conduct ourselves in business. And the Carnegie uh, coaching folks here in South Florida, I'd just give a shout out to the Garvises have coached several of my uh, staff members, actually even uh, including my daughter, to become more of an outgoing person. And the material and the content Dale Carnegie produced is really timeless, especially uh, you know how to win friends and influence people and just developing uh, relationships and taking genuine interest in other people. For anyone that's in the sales world, if you haven't read uh, all of Dale Carnegie's books, I agree with you, States. That'd be a great place for you to start. I agree with you 100%. I also put my daughter through it when it, yeah. when the opportunity arose. Yeah. Uh, States, you moved here 30 years ago. Palm Beach uh, County wasn't what it is today. I call this podcast Business in Paradise because I chose to move here. You chose to move here. When I first got to Palm Beach County, we were staying at the Breakers Hotel. We went outside in the middle of November and took a look around and said, yeah, we'd really like to stay. So what was it like when you moved here, setting up a Vistage group, and what did your first group look like in Palm Beach County? 
It was, Palm Beach County was significantly smaller. When I got on I-95 at 5 o'clock, there might have been six to eight other cars. I-95 dead-ended at PGA and didn't go further north. Oh, it was a little smaller, a little slower. It was fabulous coming from the major traffics of Los Angeles. It's interesting that you say you were at the Breakers. I, Louise and I lived at, at the Colony, not, you know, just a block or two from the, the Breakers uh, as our residence until we kind of figured out what to do. It was really interesting in those days. 30 years ago, Vistage was absolutely unheard of east of, of really the 11 western states. Uh, it, it was mostly uh, there, pl except for Wisconsin, which is where it was originated. So when I went out to talk to people, they looked at me like I had two heads because they didn't understand what I was talking about. But the original group, I'm thankful to Tom Rawson, the founder of Flagler National Bank back in those days, and uh, he saw it for the value that it was, and he introduced me to a dozen really significant players building small businesses, medium-sized businesses here in the Palm Beaches. And they all saw the value, and we had a wonderful group of guys and gals back in those days, that, and a lot of fun. And here I am 30 years later, still doing the same thing, having fun with, with the same kinds of, of, of wonderful folks. And if you were to talk to a business owner, and say, geez, some of the common mistakes that business owners make, and I see it all the time in different businesses, even in different industries, but they're fairly common mistakes. What are some p things that people should be thinking about and focusing on fixing in their businesses? The biggest single problem I see over and over again is we usually start a business because we have a product or a product idea. And so that's not really the issue. It's the actual fundamentals of business that most of us don't have that jump into it. And because most of us have the ability to convince others to buy something from us. It's now we've got to do something after we've got the order and keeping track. And that's called accounting. That's called finance. That's called putting together your numbers. And the people who know their numbers are successful early and continuously. The people who don't know their numbers find themselves in trouble and, and need help sooner than they should have and maybe sometimes too late. And so how do you go about finding your numbers? It's simpler than people really think because it, it really does come down to two and two equal four. But the best way to find it is to hire uh, somebody either part-time or full-time to help you set up a set of books because that's probably not where your interest lies and so you need somebody to do it for you and you need somebody strong enough to say you got to look at it yeah so when i started my uh, business i made the brilliant decision to put my wife who has no accounting background in charge of uh, the quickbooks which is what i find all the time i found that it was not particularly good for our marriage uh, she did not enjoy doing it uh, in the least bit and unfortunately She's really, really good at a lot of things, but she was not particularly good at that. As a result, it frustrated me and it frustrated her. So I think that your thought of spending a little bit of money to get some professional advice to help you put that together is a great idea. In Vistage, we use what we call KPIs. Can you explain what's that mean and what are they? There are certain indicators, key indicators, that that are going to point 
that you're either going in the right direction fiscally, right direction sales-wise, the right direction people-wise. And you need to have key indicators for all of those. What that really is, is common sense. You sit down and you say, what, how much am I going to sell? And, and how much is it going to cost to sell it? And who's going to sell it? And when do they have to sell it by? And when does it? And that's also a, a misunderstood word. Sales is, is the actual exchange, according to Webster's Dictionary, the exchange of money for merchandise. And in reality, we're dealing with an order. And that order needs to be converted to a sale. And, and a sale is not shipping it, the sale is getting the money. So it, it's there are many steps to that. And and I, I think I lost track of where you wanted me to go, but well, I... It, we're talking about key performance yeah, indicators. Key performance indicators. Yeah. But the key performance indicators are how many people we're going to have on the payroll, and, and when you arrive every day, are there that many people there? How much are we going to ship each day, and are the people there? Right. If uh, you were to talk to a business owner, and you were going to say uh, one thing, about how they're able to, or what you would recommend to them, to balance their business life and their personal life. A lot of business owners are workaholics. We know these guys. Uh, they're in the office at six in the morning, and maybe they leave at seven in the evening, and sometimes they see their families. They work hard, and sometimes they do play hard. But what advice would you give to a typical business owner about how to balance uh, their work life and their family life? That's a really difficult problem for most entrepreneurial type people because the joy in their life really is work. The joy in their life is producing a sale. Their joy in their life is working. And, and so it's the balance is very difficult because if you marry somebody and you have children and they don't understand the same joy you have to kind of stop and say to yourself, why, what am I doing and how are we going to balance this and, and make some decisions? And the, the other one, you've heard me say it more than once, false profits. Most everybody thinks they've got to build a business and make lots and lots of money. And when the business starts making lots and lots of money, they try to protect the money that it's making rather than stopping to say, do I need to hire some additional people? And that's really the biggest failure for smaller businesses as they start to grow. They think, oh gosh, I can't afford to add an engineer, add a production person, add a, an, an executive assistant. But those are the things that you need to add early and often so that you keep a balance within the business, which will allow you to keep a balance within your life. Wow. Having people you can delegate really important things to do who will be responsible to get them done, you'll grow faster and you'll actually make more profits. That's great advice, uh, States. One of the things that I think about is in my definition of success, it's not just about growing my business and making it as profitable as I can. It's having a balance and it's to help the families that I serve to live lives of abundance, possibility, and adventure. And you can't necessarily measure how much abundance or possibility or adventure you have in life, but it's kind of like uh, you know it when you see it. So how would you define success? What would you say to state signs, this is a uh, success in life? It's such a huge question and, and one that we don't stop to ask, Kerry. And so it's really great that you're asking and thinking about that. The, the, we're charging ahead and we don't stop 
to measure it. We're charging ahead and we're not thinking about what it is. We're jumping to the next rather than stopping to plan. And it really comes back to sitting down and a conversation you and I had earlier today, planning what we're going to do this year, the balance of this year, planning what we're going to do next year. And interestingly enough, plan what we're going to do five years from today. The five years from today is pretty fuzzy, but at least it's out there. And most of the time, that which is written down is usually accomplished. And so when you're writing it down, you have to write a quotient of happiness in there as well as profits, as well as growth. And if you have those things written, you'll do them. Uh, that's generally true. I sit down every year at the end of the year and write my goals for the following year. And as I look back, I can see the times where I've written down the things that I want. Uh, for the most part, they have generally come true. So fantastic thoughts. States, I've been at places in my career and in my life at times where uh, I've made some mistakes. I've had my back against the wall. I've had to figure out how I'm going to make the payroll uh, that particular month. This hasn't been recently, but this has certainly been the case when I originally started my business. And maybe the economy's not cooperating. Maybe you're running a business that COVID-19 has not been particularly friendly to. Can you think back, and, and quite frankly, I have learned at those particular moments more about myself and more about what I needed to do in life than at any other time. I don't want to go through them again, but I'm grateful that I had those experiences. Do you have some experiences like that that you'd be willing to share? Oh, boy. I, I don't know anybody who was hasn't started businesses and i've had the privilege of starting several there comes a time in every business where cash is just so short and and you're suddenly sitting there you said monthly i i can remember more than once in my career worrying about are we going to meet payroll on friday because you ship the stuff and now you expect people to pay you immediately, and that doesn't always happen. You're saying COVID, but the slowdowns in the economy, the, uh, the COVIDs of the world, cause people not to be able to pay you for what you did for them, even though they thought they were going to pay you on time. And it doesn't happen, and suddenly you're, you're running short, and you're trying to collect, and it, it's really hard. And you are right. You, you do some strong soul searching at that point, and you start trying to figure out, how am I going to do this? And it's most of the time you haven't stopped to look at your plan and, and it's the plan has gotten away from you and you've gotten ahead of yourself if you had. And, and so looking backwards, it, it's create that plan you and I were talking about and then follow it carefully. Because if there's a change in the plan, which COVID was certainly the change in, in people in the hotel and service industries plans, it's really horrible what they've had to go through with 10% occupancy. And if, if they hadn't, thought about contingencies, long-term plans, and had cash available, the hotel, the, the restaurant isn't going to be there. And those are the things we have to plan ahead for and save for. You know, one of the things that I was always told early on and in my career is that the banks want to give you money when you don't need it. And they don't want to give you money when they think you need it. And so I've always been prepared from the perspective of having an available credit line and going into a time when I thought I might need cash. 
honestly pulling down my credit line if I thought that there was a chance that the banks were going to cut off sources of credit. And I've also heard the expression that growth burns cash. So as you're growing and you need to continue to hire new people and buy new product and add new inventory, uh, you need a lot of cash. What are some strategies that uh, successful business owners use for uh, cash flow management? Look, first thing that they learn somewhere along the way when they do the stumbling is that growth is is a wonderful thing, but it's also an enemy. If you have forecasted a profit of 20% on your product and you grow more than 20%, you're going to run out of cash. Now, that's why you have your bank and your bank loves you. And, and, and as long as you're paying your interest payments, quote unquote, you're probably going to be able to borrow your money. But if your fi financial statement starts to go negative, it, the problems that you're talking about start to loom because the banks kind of like to look at their statements. And, and when they see that you're growing faster then your profits allow you to grow and then they're going to start pulling back and it's a little scary. And you're right. If uh, we we have to be very careful when times get tough, you need to have drawn your line of credit, uh, but you need to also follow your plan and, and don't let growth be the monster that consumes you. Let growth be the monster you tame and you monitor it, you care for it. So sometimes it's okay to turn away business if you think you can't fulfill it. Oh, God, I hate that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we all probably hate that, but uh, sometimes if it keeps you in business, it's something that you have to do. Actually, what I recommend at that point is you raise prices. <laughs> yeah. If the demand is high, raise prices and see who keeps paying it. Yes. Okay. That's good. States, let's talk about a few personal things, if you're willing to share. Uh, as you think back over your life, um, you, I, most of us have some types of heroes in different areas of our life, people that we really think, geez, I wish I you know, could have the investment acumen of a Warren Buffett or a Peter Lynch or the golf ability of a Jack Nicholas or a Tom Watson or somebody like that. Are there people that you think back on and reflect and say, geez, these guys were in, in whatever area it is that you admire. These were some of my heroes in life. My earliest hero when I moved to Los Angeles was Howard Hughes. I mean, there was a guy who moved to Los Angeles essentially as a youngster, didn't have to work and yet he went around creating companies and created Hughes Tool, Hughes, Hughes uh, Computer, Hughes Aircraft, Hughes Helicopter. I mean, everywhere you looked as you drove around Los Angeles, you saw the Hughes name on a different kind of building because he got up every day and went to work. And, and it, strangely, I mean, you read his stories and he met in bathrooms in the middle of the night to create companies. But it was just interesting that he was driven to build and, and then build some more. And, and so he was, he kind of inspired me to, that, that it can be done. You just have to stop and think about how to do it and, and make it happen. And it seems like Elon Musk would be oh, the modern version of Howard. Yeah. Yeah. And also a guy that primarily lives in Los Angeles. So yes. Must be must be something the water, or maybe even the air, yes. more, more likely in L.A. Do you have any favorite historical figures, people that you look back on history and say this was somebody that really made um, an impact on the world or culture or society or the arts? 
I don't know about society and the arts. I, 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 we talked a lot about California. Uh, I come from Sonora. I was born in Sonora, California, raised in Fresno, California. And Fresno gave me a lot of my early values. And, and the peoples of Fresno mostly were people who arrived in covered wagons. They were my heritage. I, I'm fifth generation Californian. And they got there in covered wagons. And then they drove from sunup to sundown in a big square and, and put rocks in the corner of the square. And that's the land they owned. And then they got out in a desert because you drive through the San, Fernando, or San Joaquin Valley today and, and, and you see a lot of vineyards and, and orchards. But it, it looks like it's got a lot of water. There wasn't a lot of water in those days. It was all brought in. Uh, and those people suffered and built out of sand, a, a phenomenal structure. And, and I was brought up in, in that whole environment of, of you can do it, you just have to work hard. Uh, work hard was what I was taught growing up. Help others. You know, you plow your field first and then you go help others. Wow. Now, States, you're talking about your heritage and your background. And one of the things that I always have to do I have a kind of a unique or unusual name myself, but one of the things that I always have to do is when I introduce you to other people is they'll want to make sure that I'm saying your name the right way. Tell us the background. How did you get to have such a unique name? The name States, just the same as United States. Uh, my father picked it. My father was in vaudeville in his early teens, along with his sister. When he was born, he was given the name Sonny because he had a very outgoing, happy disposition as a little bitty baby. He w grew up with, uh, in his early days as Sonny Hines. And then when he got into vaudeville, which is what he and his sister did, and they introduced a dance called the Black Bottom. They were traveling the United States for the Orpheum Circuit. They ended up in Chicago, and the Chicago theater manager said, I don't like the name Sonny and Leanna, my aunt's name, for the marquee. It sounds like two ladies, so please pick another name. And my father looked up at the marquee, and he was at the State Theater in Chicago. And so he said, put states at the state, he, and they did. And they happened to get a write-up in Variety that week, so the name stuck with him, and I was blessed with him giving me that name as well. Wow, your father was in vaudeville. Yes. I don't think I knew that. That's, ah, that's, yes. that's pretty interesting. And how about your mother? How did they meet? My mother was, was raised on a, a farm, went to you know, a one-room a one school in Fresno. And my mother, uh, uh, my father, when he got out of vaudeville, went into insurance and, and sign painting and whatever he could do to make a living. And, and ended up in Fresno. Most people don't realize Fresno being halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco was a place that an awful lot of people in show business uh, kind of settled in because it was a quiet community that they could be away from people and have a good time. And so he went there and ran into my mother. Uh, she was a beautician at that point. They married, and, and so she had a beauty shop on one side of the duplex store, and he had the sign shop and insurance agency on the other side. That must have been an interesting uh, time growing up in Fresno. Yes. So. Yes. When I left Fresno, as soon when college was over, there were 41,000 people in Fresno. Today, there's almost 2 million people there. Wow. That's a lot of growth. That's a, a significant amount of growth. So, States, you're, you're in California. At some point, you meet this uh, lady that you end up marrying. Tell us a little bit about Louise. 
Oh, well, when you say a little bit, that's, you know, I was married to her a long time. Louise was a wonderful helper in my life. I was really, really fortunate. Her father had been uh, a major executive at Anaconda Copper, which probably most people don't even remember existed, but it was a major company in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And she grew up in, in a very nice household in uh, Dobbs Ferry, New York, and then went to work for Young and Rubicum, an advertising agency, got transferred to California by them. Uh, it was one of those magical things we met in an apartment building or the surrounding a swimming pool just right out of the movies and she was a really big help to me because she was structured and thought about things uh, thoroughly whereas i was constantly on the run I, I i never gave a thought about not can't do or i mean i just knew i could do anything and and she said but are you sure and and i said well i, I never thought about whether i was sure or not what year did you get married ah 1960 one. Wow. So Louise, uh, she was organizing your life. One of the things that you're known for is um, your attire. Tell us about her influence on what you would. <laughs> and right now, for the uh, audience that cannot see states, he's wearing a yellow shirt and green pants. And he looks uh, absolutely fantastic. And the socks are yellow also. So tell us about Louise's influence on what you have in your closet states. Uh, when Louise saw my apartment for the first time, she saw me mostly in the evenings or on weekends uh, when we first met each other. And, and so I had sport shirts and, and wash pants, which is the common California attire, and a pair of tennis shoes. When she finally saw my closet, I, it had a brown suit and a black suit in it and about 100 white shirts. And she said, what in the world is this? Are you a, a, an undertaker or what? I said, no. I explained that I wore the brown suit every other day and the black suit and exchanged them. And that way I could keep track of things because that clothing for going to work was white shirt and a, and a, and a tie and, and, a, and a couple of suits. And as time went on and we got, and well, got married, she took over my wardrobe. I didn't know she was going to do that, but I came home, I guess the second week or third week of our marriage, and on the bed was three or four suits, a couple of sports jackets, some colored shirts, and ties that actually weren't red and, and, and black or brown. And I said, I, I wouldn't know what to do with those. And she said, don't you worry about it. I'll lay it out every day. And for the next 60, 56 years, that's exactly what she did. She laid out my clothes. She bought my clothes. I ended up with a lot of suits and gosh, you can't believe the wide variety of colors that I have. I, I have more shirts than most department stores, I think, because she, she, was, she saved me lots of money by shopping every sale, is what she, she said. I said, you could save me money by not going to the sales. And you and Louise did some special things during the course of your life and your marriage. I know there's one special place that meant a lot to both of you. Tell us about it. Keneal Bay, built by Lawrence Rockefeller. He saw it in the Second World War. He flew over uh, a little bitty island called St. John. Uh, he was a Rockefeller, so they did have money. So he called their financial advisor and, and said, I need you to buy that island so that when I get back, I can do something. And they literally proceeded to try 
try and buy the entire island. He came back and took one of the peninsulas on the island and created a resort, really, for his friends. I mean, it was just a phenomenal place to go. You really, Louise called it camping with sheets uh, because it, it was very plain but really wonderful. It, it, it was right out of the movies. You felt you were stepping into a movie every time you went there. It was wondrous. And you went there for years. 54 we went there from 1962. She, she, she kept badgering me. I said, we're in California. You go to Hawaii for a honeymoon. And, she, and but so after our um, a couple of years, she said, we have to go to the Caribbean. We have to go to Keneal. And I kept saying, it won't be the same. She dragged me down there in 63. And I, I couldn't believe it. I raised my head out of the water, looking at the flora fauna and the clarity of the water. And I said, you were wrong. This is better than you said it was. And so we literally went there every single year for the next, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And then we saved up more and we went there a couple of times. And in the last bunch of years, we've been going four times a year. As you were going to Keneal Bay, unfortunately, a hurricane hit the island. But that didn't stop you. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you're talking about my the, the time I went there after the resort was destroyed. Yes. Oh, I, because we'd been going so long and we'd made friends with with the management and also the owners. I called. I said, we have to go back. We have to go see it, even though it's destroyed. And they allowed us access to the place for a couple of weeks. A couple of the rooms had survived. The majority of the rooms were gone, but a couple had survived. And they were kind enough to turn the water and turn on the generators. And, and so we had the room. And they let me essentially do an archaeological dig on the 168 acres and all of the rooms and, and facilities of the place. And it was, it was heartbreaking and also just amazing to see how devastating uh, hurricanes and, and the resultant problems of uh, that result, and, and then how rapidly the jungle takes over. I mean, it, it, within, within a year, it had covered uh, the, the grass and, and weeds and vines and trees just had started to take the whole place back. Wow. Keneal Bay, I know, is one of your paradises, and Palm Beach County is another one of them. Tell me what you—the the podcast is called Business in Paradise, and I, I called it that because I think that Palm Beach County, to me, is, is truly a paradise. Tell me what you like about Palm Beach County and uh, what's been special to you about living in this paradise. First and foremost, when I got here in 1989, I thought, my gosh, would did I ever make a mistake? I should have been here in 1979, maybe 1969. The thing that amazed, impressed, and excited me were the peoples of Palm Beaches. The genuineness, the kindness, the acceptance, and the fun. Uh, both working and, and pleasure. You know, standing on a sandbar with your toes in the sand, stopping and, and people that you don't know, but you just stop and visit boat to boat. Uh, it, it, it's just such a joyful place. And for our listeners that don't know, you've got a beautiful penthouse on Singer Island. Yes, I do. Uh, and you get to look at the ocean every single day. I look at the inland waterway one direction and the ocean the other. So you get to see the full majesty of uh, everything that the ocean and the water and the sun has to offer right here in Palm Beach. When you're not working on Vistage and you're not engaged in business, what are some of the things that you like to do, States? The sunsets every night 
are so amazing that you you have to stop take your breath and just watch that sun and and the magnificence that it creates uh it, it is just so amazing the restaurants of 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 the palm beaches the treasure coast the abundance of creative uh, imaginative chefs and and restaurant owners it's it's amazing the beauty of just getting in the car periodically and and driving west out towards it, it, nowhere and just looking at what's going on and and the beauty because in living in lots whoops excuse, living in Los Angeles I watched Los Angeles convert from farm communities when I moved there in 55 it was a large amount of farms and and when I left there was just building after building people after people's cars everywhere can't move and to be able to have openness and be able to get in the car and just drive around and see nature and people enjoying nature that's that's the other part you see people having fun states you've been a phenomenal guest today one thing i'd like to do before we go is just give a shout back out to the topic that we started this conversation with which was vistage in the old days i think vistage was called tech t-e-t-e-c right but tell our listeners if they're interested in learning more about vistage getting involved in a vistage group or contacting somebody that has to do with vistage or yourself what should they do? How do they get a hold of somebody so that they can learn more about Vistage? They can call me, States Hines. You can, if you just go States Hines and, and in the internet, I might, there aren't, there's, there's just me, it'll pop up. My phone number, do you want? Sure. Area code 561-707-6151 will get me. That's my cell number. Give a shout out or put vistage.com and that'll pop up. Uh, we're a worldwide organization. We're almost every country of the world. And what types of businesses or what sizes of businesses should somebody start to think about getting into a Vistage group? They really should start talking to a Vistage chair almost when they're starting their business. They're not, they're, they probably don't have time to be a Vistage member. The time to become a Vistage member is when you finally think you can't afford it, but you, you know you need to do something is when you should do it. So it's, it's hard to, to find when because it, it's really up to the individual chairman as to what he's looking for and the individual group. But I, I truly believe everybody should be in Vistage. Vistage is the continuing education for business. I mean, that's that's what I look at it as. And you said something that's really key, and that's when uh, you think you can't afford it and maybe you're not ready for it is probably the exact moment at which you need to be uh, come more involved. Because what Vistage has done for me is that it's made me recognize that there are other people out there that have different approaches and different opinions and been able to give me advice on how I can look at the things that are going on inside of my business. I was never trained as a business owner. There was no school for that. I didn't learn it in college. I have a history degree. And so I started, as uh, Michael Gerber in the E-Myth says, as a tactician. I was a good financial advisor, but I didn't know how to do payroll or set up a, a QuickBooks system or uh, build out a um, computer network in the office or pay people to uh, do any of these things. So through my trial and error, I was able to 
to accomplish most of that. But now, as I want to take the business to the next level, this uh, group of uh, outside board of directors that I've been able to uh, work with uh, through working with your Vistage Group States has been enormously helpful to me. So I would tell anybody that's thinking that uh, maybe you need some help in growing your business and that maybe you don't have all the answers, there are other people out there that have probably been through almost the exact same things that you're experiencing and they can help you. So I really want to thank you, States. You've been a great guest on the uh, podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us in Business in Paradise. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carrie Stamp and Company is located at 110 Bridge Road, Tequesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Thank you.